Hi, I'm Dr. Will Bostock from Cambridge Progressive Medicine. This podcast aims to assist you in taking control of your own health, well-being and happiness using a combination of Western medicine, psychotherapy, thought work and lifestyle. The podcasts are designed to be used in conjunction with working face-to-face with me, but I've made them freely available and you're welcome to listen to them independently. And if you do, I hope you find them helpful. If you would like to work directly with me, you can visit my website at www.cambridgeprogressivemedicine.com. Hello, and welcome back. This is the fourth episode on this podcast, All About Pain. If you are new to the series, I can understand that based on the titles, you may be tempted to jump straight to this part. I know I would. Show me the money. But to get the most out of this episode, I would really recommend listening to the other episodes first. Or at the very least, doing the homework from episode 23 and watch Professor Mosley's 20-minute TED Talk. At the end of the last episode, we discussed a scientific perspective on how non-medical interventions can have medical consequences. We explored why it might be necessary to start thinking about alternative solutions, if you've been suffering from pain that's been going on for months or even years, and doesn't seem to be responding to conventional treatments. At the end of the episode, I promised I'd translate this scientific, theoretical approach into some practical solutions. The good news is that if you've listened to the previous episodes and are on board, you are already halfway there. You've already done a lot of the hard work. Wax on, wax off. Being able to understand and accept the role of neural networks in the production of pain to be able to start to believe that the problem might not be entirely in the tissues of the body, but that this does not mean that it isn't real, equally deserving of love, compassion and professional intervention, is a crucial step in the management of chronic pain syndromes. In episode 22, we discussed how pain is a warning mechanism, produced by the brain in response to perceived danger. We explored how these danger signals do not just come from pain receptors in the body in response to injury, but from multiple other sources, our other senses, our knowledge of our current situation, and the brain's beliefs about the significance of the situation, the brain's predictions about the future, and calculations on how to best increase survival. If the brain calculates that pain will improve survival, by moving us quickly out of harm's way, or forcing us to rest in injury, it will generate pain. The example we gave was the difference in pain experienced if you twist your ankle chasing a deer, versus twisting it running away from a lion. In our modern lives, the dangers are different from those we encountered when this pain system first evolved. In general, there aren't too many lines about. However, we may fear injuries 
which could interfere with our ability to work and our livelihood, or with our hobbies, sport and recreation. Things that might be central to our enjoyment of life and make up part of who we are. Or diseases which may threaten not only our livelihoods, but also our lives. The brain is constantly on the lookout for threats, and this survival instinct creates a natural negativity bias, and a human tendency to always think the worst. When we experience pain, the natural immediate thought is, what is wrong? We don't generally view pain as a helpful message guiding us towards health, but as a dreadful warning of impending disaster. I know this to be true because I have personal experience with it. If I'm out running and my leg starts to ache, instead of just slowing down a bit, if I'm not deliberately mindful of it, my mind starts running away. What's wrong with the leg? Is it going to continue to get worse? Does this mean I'll never be able to run again? Is it going to start hurting when I'm riding my bike too? I know the same thought patterns occur to a greater or lesser extent for many people. This is not a value judgement. It's just a natural part of the human psyche, as a consequence of the way we have evolved. Now, it's easy to see how this could be problematic. If pain is generated in response to perceived danger, and pain itself is viewed as dangerous, we have set up a positive feedback loop, and we won't be able to maintain equilibrium. The thought, my leg is getting worse, soon I won't be able to run at all. If it carries on this way, I won't be able to work. Itself is a danger message that the brain internalises at a subconscious level. And the science shows us that when the brain perceives danger, it creates more pain. On another level, if we've bought in to simplistic concepts of pain, that all pain represents something wrong in the tissues of the body, when we experience pain, the immediate response is to search for what is wrong. As we've discussed before, to the primitive survival instinct parts of our brain, our lizard brain, Uncertainty is always dangerous, and we fear it. Not knowing what is wrong is itself incredibly distressing to us, because when we don't know what's wrong, we naturally assume the worst, that the symptoms will never get better, or that they are a manifestation of a sinister underlying condition, a cancer that is eventually going to kill us. Not knowing creates fear, and fear drives pain. If the pain gets worse as a result of this fear, our conviction that there must be something wrong will naturally increase. Because of this positive feedback, the pain isn't going to go away, and may even start spreading to other areas of our bodies. The more we search for a hidden cause for our pain, the more anxiety, fear and subsequent pain is produced. In addition to this positive feedback, searching for a cause is distressing in its own right. Having tests for autoimmune diseases or MRIs looking for damaged joints are stressful things. 
All tests are stressful, from GCSEs to driving tests to MRIs. Tests themselves create fear and anxiety. If you go to see your GP with a problem and end up in the hospital with fluorescent strip lights, strong smell of disinfectant and men in white coats who stick you through a giant yet claustrophobic clunking machine. This whole experience is going to reinforce your lizard brain's suspicion that something is very seriously wrong. It is enough to make any normal person anxious and afraid, even before you've had a chance to think about the results. And then the waiting period starts. Just like all tests are stress-provoking, waiting for and receiving results is just as bad. I get fairly nervous waiting for an Amazon package to arrive, and that's something I'm looking forward to. Even worse, with medical tests, if you keep testing, eventually you'll find something. Far from putting your mind at rest, there is a significant risk of creating more anxiety. Sometimes we believe that if we could just get the tests done, we could put our minds to rest. But far from putting your mind to rest, there is a significant risk of creating more anxiety. Let's take low back pain as an example. Low back pain is common and can be extremely debilitating. Often people with chronic back pain have MRIs of their back and many are found to have disc degeneration or disc prolapses. If you tell somebody that their back is degenerating, this is bound to increase fear about the back. If the brain is convinced the back is in danger, it may well generate more pain because it calculates that it's necessary to protect the back. The obvious response to this, and one frequently raised when I'm trying to convince my patients that an MRI of the back might not be necessary or even desirable, is that at least we will have found out what is wrong. That it is better to know than to not know. However, there is increasing evidence that things are not so black and white and that these tests may be misleading. Studies have demonstrated that there is extraordinarily little correlation between what we see on the images and the amount of pain people experience. People with very severe pain may have little to see on their images at all and some people with severe degeneration on the MRI have no pain at all. It seems increasingly doubtful that these changes on MRI have anything to do with the level of back pain people experience. Although lots of people with back pain have MRI changes, it seems that pain is probably not caused by this degeneration. Recent studies have demonstrated that disc degeneration in backs is incredibly common. So much so, that they are essentially normal changes associated with ageing, just like with wrinkles or a receding hairline. Studies where they've done MRIs of the normal population have shown that 37% of 20-year-olds and 96% of 
of 80-year-olds with no back pain have evidence of disc degeneration on their MRIs. It seems doctors may have told countless people with low back pain, anxious as to the cause of the pain, that their backs are degenerating, when they only had evidence of normal signs of ageing. It is difficult to imagine that such a message isn't going to have negative effects. The more we learn about the ways the body can go wrong, the more research we do on the internet, the more medical horror stories we read about in forums, the more tests we have, the more anxiety and fear is generated. This all adds to the brain's perception of imminent danger, and with it, strengthening of the neural networks that drive chronic pain. In chronic pain syndromes, the sense that nobody knows what's wrong is one of the elements that may be reinforcing neural networks to perpetuate pain cycles. If we continue to believe that all pain is an indication of danger in the body and continue to search for the cause, to focus our attention on danger and uncertainty, then fear, anxiety and pain will continue to increase. With chronic pain syndromes, this is further complicated by emotional and social factors arising from our Western culture and health beliefs. Not only do we have pain to contend with, which is bad enough in its own right, but because these conditions are poorly understood, there is the whole Western medical response to deal with too. Multiple drugs that don't work and have unpleasant side effects. Multiple tests that seem to just create more uncertainty. Maybe multiple trips to different doctors and specialists, and a feeling of not getting anywhere. Feelings of being dismissed by the medical profession, or of not being believed, of being blamed, of shame and uncertainty. All the things that we discussed in the previous episode. This is why understanding neural networks is so powerful and why this understanding itself can be part of the treatment for chronic pain syndromes. We are finally able to say we do know what's wrong. We know what it is and we have a good idea of how it arises. We know that it is biological and that it is real, but we also know that it isn't a problem in the tissues. It's not a cancer and it's not going to kill you. We also know that there is unlikely to be a simple surgery or medication that is going to fix it. But there are treatments and techniques that are proven to have an impact. Knowing what is wrong can calm fear. And when we calm the brain's fear, we can start to rewire the neural networks that create pain. Sometimes in chronic pain syndromes, the situation can be even more complicated. When pain has been going on for many years, I think sometimes it gets to the stage where it's no longer an underlying cause people fear, but the pain itself. The distress is not so much that nobody knows what is wrong, but rather that nothing can be done. This is an equally frightening proposition. 
and maybe an even harder, vicious cycle to break. As the pain is not an unknown that can be discovered. On the contrary, it is known all too well. However, even in this case, I hope that understanding neural networks may be helpful in starting to manage the pain. In the last episode, we talked about neural plasticity. Neural networks are set up by groups of neurons firing together in a coordinated way. And the more times a particular combination fire together, the stronger the connection between them becomes. Despite this strengthening, they never become rigid or completely stuck. And with work, we can rewire these connections. This means that even if pain has been going on for many years, it remains potentially reversible. Understanding the mechanisms that produce pain give us the knowledge that something can be done. Knowing that something can be done may provide hope. And hope, along with faith and love, should not be underestimated in their role in human health. Understanding neural networks so that we know what is wrong, to reduce fear and danger signals, calming and reassuring our primitive survival instincts, and convincing our lizard brain that everything is going to be okay, is an essential and major step in the management of chronic pain. Obviously, though, it is not the full story. As we have learnt, neural networks once ingrained and habituated, are likely to carry on firing unless purposefully changed. Rewiring and relearning these patterns is no simple task. And as I have said repeatedly in this series, there are no quick fixes or magic pills. It is unlikely that pain that has been going on for years is going to completely resolve just through listening to a few podcasts and I think it would be disingenuous for me to suggest otherwise. My aim with these episodes is not to cure pain, but more to restore hope that reducing pain is possible. To give faith that we can get better. To get our lives back on track. To find joy again. And more importantly, to understand that the power to do this lies within us that we can accept responsibility without blame. And through hope, faith and acceptance of responsibility, start to take positive steps forward in the long and difficult journey towards recovery. I honestly believe that the power of recovery lies within each individual and not with any professor, scientist or healthcare professional or indeed psychologist, life coach or spiritual leader. Our bodies and minds have an innate ability to heal and to grow. It is true that sometimes we may need some guidance to help us back onto the right path. But this guidance cannot really be given like a pill. It can only be freely offered. Each person must come to it and explore it for themselves, from their own unique perspective and in their own individual way. This is why I consider managing chronic pain, and health in general for that matter, to be a personal journey rather than a treatment. 
This may seem frightening. If the responsibility for getting better lies with me, then there is a risk that I might fail. Most of us have a tendency towards self-doubt. We judge ourselves far more harshly than we judge others. And often, secretly, deep down, we believe that we're not that great. Because of this self-doubt, we would prefer to transfer responsibility to others. This isn't always necessarily a bad thing to do. I delegate my tax return to my accountant. However, there are some things that cannot be delegated in this way. Not for any moral reason, but simply because nobody else can do it. You can't get someone else to go to the gym for you and hope to get ripped. The same is true for rewiring neural networks. If I wanted to work on my tennis game, I may well get a coach to help me. But ultimately, I'm the one that will have to put in the hours, practice and dedication. And to do this, I first have to accept that my current game might need improving, that I might benefit from a coach, without activating my shame. Because of this, and because of the power of the nocebo and placebo effects, the first step in the journey to recovery involves learning to believe in ourselves. Until we can truly love ourselves, be genuinely compassionate to ourselves, to have trust and faith in ourselves, and in our ability to heal, we can never get off the ground. I want to be careful to note that this is not about blame. As we have said before, responsibility and blame are not the same thing, and we can have one without the other. And it is also not something unique to chronic pain syndromes. This principle is true across the board, no matter why we are feeling unwell, and regardless of what the blood tests or x-rays show. The power of recovery from chronic pain, a sports injury, depression or cancer ultimately lies within the individual. And for the best possible recovery from all of these conditions, self-belief, self-love and hope are required. Of course, I'm not saying that if we have self-belief, we will live forever. Everyone is going to die, and eventually you will get a disease that cannot be treated by Western medicine or by a healthy lifestyle, body and mind, and it will kill you. You may think I'm being unnecessarily crass, but this is a simple fact. We cannot avoid death indefinitely. But as we've previously discussed, health is not necessarily about length of life. And if we get a terminal illness, or, if we're lucky, when we get old, we can be more or less healthy in the time that we have. And this will depend on self-belief, self-love and hope. Unfortunately, self-belief, self-love and hope are not easily come by and again, are not attributes readily acquired in a 10-minute GP consultation, or indeed, a 20-minute podcast. This is why I recommend to all my patients that they seriously consider engaging with some talking therapies. 
Everyone should have therapy. I've had a lot of therapy, and my life is completely different as a result. Once again, I want to make it clear that the recommendation that psychological therapy might be an important step in the management of central pain syndromes in no way suggests that central pain does not have a biological cause, that it's not real or it's just anxiety. If this is the impression you are getting, I'd recommend going back and listening to these episodes on pain from the beginning. These are slightly complex concepts, so you might want to listen more than once, or look at the transcripts on my website. Sometimes with tricky ideas, I find reading easier than listening. Whilst this process of rewiring neural networks and managing chronic pain is a personal journey, this doesn't mean that we can't have guidance. There are various techniques that have been proven in clinical trials to improve people's experience of pain. Techniques based in mindfulness and meditation, emotional awareness, expression and processing, journaling, visualisations, understanding of triggers and exploring fears around pain. Many of these techniques and strategies are similar in nature to much of the work we have been doing throughout the Cambridge Progressive Medicine podcast. And if you have not been listening from the beginning, this podcast could be a good place to start your journey. However, I'm a GP and not a pain specialist. And this podcast takes a broad view of health and well-being and is not a dedicated resource for pain. There are, however, programmes out there that have been specifically developed for managing and treating chronic pain. And if what we've been discussing on this podcast makes sense to you, you might like to think about checking some of these out. Unfortunately, despite the growing scientific evidence for these interventions, NHS-based services providing these therapies are limited, something which I'm hopefully going to be working on addressing in the future. There is a programme based in Plymouth called Body Reprogramming, which is specifically aimed at rewiring neural networks to treat chronic pain syndromes. It was developed by Professor of Health Psychology Michael Highland and is based on his Highland model, which I'll be talking a little more about in the next episode. Although the course itself is only available to those in Plymouth, their website is freely available and has lots of helpful resources, including a free-to-download patient manual. This handbook goes through step-by-step techniques that you can start implementing in your day-to-day life with the aim of reprogramming neural networks and reducing pain. It is well worth checking out. If you feel like you would benefit from a little more guidance than this self-directed approach, there are private clinicians that are doing excellent work in this field. I would recommend the organisation SERPA, which was created by physiotherapist Georgie Oldfield, based on the work of the American physician Dr John Sarno. SERPA has been developed in conjunction with many of the leading experts in this field, including Dr Howard Schubiner, who has twice appeared on the list of the best doctors in America. I highly recommend you check out the SERPA website. They offer a range of services, 
from face-to-face work with a SERPA-trained practitioner in your area, to online courses and books. I will put the link to SERPA and body reprogramming on my website. I will also add the link to Dr. Schubiner's website, Unlearn Your Pain. Although his programs are based in the US, there are lots of excellent free resources on his site, from video lectures, podcast episodes, blogs, articles, and links to scientific papers, all of which are a fantastic resource. If all this seems a bit daunting, an alternative way to start exploring this work is with an app called Curable. The app has been designed as a structured program aimed at rewiring neural networks to help to reduce pain. The co-founders of Curable have all had personal experience of recovery from chronic pain and have developed the app in association with a fantastic team of leading experts in this field. It is free to download and is packed full of information with expert interviews and recovery stories. There is a subscription charge for the full guided course, which includes brain retraining exercises, in-depth education, visualizations and meditations, expressive writing exercises, and an online support community. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and I think this try-before-you-buy feature makes it an easily accessible resource and a good route to exploring this work further, and it may be a little more affordable than formal one-to-one support. The best part is you can download it and get going straight away. You don't need a referral, and there is no waiting list. Now, I know that might have sounded like an advert for Curable, so I want to point out I don't have any sponsorship from them. In fact, they've kind of been annoying me recently because I signed up for the free trial to check out what they were doing and they've been constantly spamming my email ever since. But I do think these could be useful resources and that's why I'm recommending them to you here. I will put the links for this and the other resources we've discussed on my website and for your homework this week, you can take your pick. I can't wait to hear about how you get on.